0: Good morning, Seven Mile Road. It is certainly good to be back. Uh, I've been away on study leave for a couple of weeks, and with great joy, I get to open the scriptures with you this morning. It's the only thing that would make it sweeter is if I could look in your eyes as I preach this word to you, but know that I love you, I've been praying for you, and I've been looking forward to being back with you in this way. This morning... The word that I come bearing as we start a new series is this. It is a time to rebuild. Is it not? We feel it down in our bones. We know it to be true that we are entering into a season that is a season that calls upon the church and calls upon God's people to be a people ready to to rebuild. We are a city and a country, a globe that has been stripped down and exposed broken and undone in our anxiety in our stress in our sickness in our confusion our illusions of control have evaporated we are in a space months after we started on this journey of recognizing that there's still so much unknown There's financial uncertainty. There are racial tensions that continue to rage in our streets. There is loneliness. Depression is on the rise. We have wrestled with this over the months, and here we are in a place, and I want to speak into that place saying this, now is not a time. Now is not a time to hunker down, to hang on, to circle the wagons. Now is not a time for God's people to say we're just going to we're just going to wait. We're going to allow kind of a sluggishness of soul to begin to seep in and our hope is going to be in a vaccine in normalcy whatever that means, but the the time is now for God's people to to take ground, to speak hope, to rebuild, to be grace and with skin on, to be to be salt, and to be light. You see, throughout history, the church has done just that. We can look back into distant history, times of plague, when people were running from cities and Christians were plunging in, saying, now is the time to be the church. We could look back in more recent American history, a time when there were racial riots going on in the streets, where there was uh, a leader of dubious ethical standards where people felt like the morals of the society were coming unhinged. This was the late 60s and 70s when a president was being impeached and riots were happening in the streets and people felt like free love was taking over and the ethical undergirding of our nation was coming unraveled. And into that space, there was a movement of God one that we call the the Jesus movement, as hundreds of thousands came to salvation, as thousands of churches were planted, as the church was the church and God revealed himself in power in the wake of confusion. The truth is, the story of history is the story of God's bride displaying his glory particularly and profoundly in moments of unrest in moments where it felt like the walls were down. And so... As we step into a season that is going to call on us to be a people who rebuild, we're going to do so by directing our attention to the book of Nehemiah, a unique book in the Old Testament that's the story of a a leader and a people that respond to the call of God on their lives to rebuild. The setting is 440 BC. It is 140 years after Jerusalem has been destroyed the temple was broken down. rubble was left in the wake of, of God's wrath being poured out on his, on his sinful people. And it's now 70 years after some of the people were sent back. And, and so here we are 140 years out from destruction, 70 years out from people making their way back into Jerusalem. And we are going to encounter a leader, a profoundly called, strong leader in Nehemiah. And he's going to steward his influence for the purpose of rebuilding. And he's going to call to a people. And in this book, we're going to see very distinctly in the first half of the book, we're going to see the heart of the leader. In the second half of the book, we're going to see the soul of the community that responds. And a leader and a community knit together in the way that we see in this book is is prepared and positioned to rebuild in the moment of struggle and of heartache. And so we're gonna go on this journey together. The invitation is gonna be for you to consider where do you have influence? Where is God calling you to lead? In your home, in your neighborhood, in your office, in, in your network of relationships? Where are you called to lead? And what would it look like to raise up like a leader who rebuilds? And we're gonna wrestle in the second half of the book later on this fall, what does it look like for us to be the sort of community that responds to God's call and all together leans in? We wanna be a people who rebuild. And this morning, as we take Nehemiah chapter one as our introduction to this journey, we're going to understand what does it mean that we are called people, like individually called. You, Seven Mile Road, each of you has a call on your life. I don't just mean a vocation. I don't just mean like a a call to achieve and to make a living. I mean a call towards meaning, A calling around what matters most. And this morning, what we're gonna determine as we, as we start to peel back on the story of Nehemiah and peer in, we're gonna see what is it that makes a calling? What are the components of divine calling? So with that invitation, I want you to pay attention to, to Nehemiah chapter one with me. As always, the verses will be provided for you on the, on the bottom third of the screen, but I'd invite you to get a Bible and to have it in front of you. Um, let, let's dig in to this text together. And just before I read, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention to what God has to say through his word this morning. Nehemiah chapter one and verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And then I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house, we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you were unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and you keep my commandments and you do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In chapter one of Nehemiah, we have a beautiful picture of the components that make up calling. And the first one that leaps off the page with such clarity is this, there must be a divine burden. Did you hear the language of burden in Nehemiah? He is a, a man that feels it down in his bones. When he asks, His brother Hanani and the men that came from Judah in verses one through three, as he's starting this story, he asked them, How are the people doing who survived the exile? How is Jerusalem doing? And what he hears is this that even though it has been 70 years since a group of people have been sent back to inhabit Jerusalem, nothing has changed. They are an exposed people. The walls and the gates are down, and they are in distress marked by shame. And when this man who is separated by great distance, he's about 850 miles from Jerusalem. He has never been to Jerusalem as best we can tell. He's never been there. He is at great distance. He doesn't know these people by name. He's never walked with them. They're not his neighbors. He's at great distance to them. He is removed in time and space. This is 140 years in the past, now 70 years, and he is now 850 miles away. But in this moment, something in him breaks deeply. Did you hear it in verse 4a? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. That's burden. This man all of a sudden realizes, I I wonder in some ways if Nehemiah was even surprised by the intensity of his response. I wonder. Like when all of a sudden he just starts, something is like unearthed from deep subterranean place. He begins to burst forth with, with mourning and grief and tears. That's kind of the way calling works. It's like deep calling to deep. Something is unlocked down in a soul where we start to be undone about a particular reality that breaks the heart of God. This is the first piece that began to forge Nehemiah's calling from God was that he was burdened about something specific. The walls are down in Jerusalem. My question as we start on this journey together, as we try to shake off the sluggishness of soul that has accompanied the season of COVID, as we've been pressed into our homes and as we've wrestled with what is normal, my question for you as a particular individual is this, what is your burden, your calling from God? What is your divine burden? Let me say that another way as you start to twirl this in your mind. What is something that is near and dear to the heart of God and that's not enough? Because there's a lot of things that are near and dear to the heart of God and God's heart is expansive and eternal and he can be simultaneously passionate and committed to all of those things, but we can't. We're frail and human. And so it's what is near and dear to God's heart, but then secondly, and also affects you in a guttural way. You can start to answer that question. You begin to unearth, what's your particular calling? What is that for you? Well, on study leave, I had the opportunity to read a book called Unique. Unique was written by an acquaintance of mine named Will Mancini, and it's a book that is penned to help an individual discern this sort of calling. And I just want to share a few of the things in that book that were helpful for me. I'm going to give you four diagnostic kind of ways to think about unearthing your burden And I would encourage you with pen and paper, maybe later today or later this week, would you answer some of these questions and wrestle with these things? Because if we are going to discern calling and go on a journey to rebuild, we've gotta gotta help identify and unearth these things. Four simple diagnostics. First, this is a simple one directly connected to the text. What have you wept over? When you think back over the last maybe year or five, what are the couple of moments where you heard a story, you heard something that was going on, and then you were surprised, like, wow, what is this hot, salty discharge coming from my eyes? Like, all of a sudden, there's this reality of like, I am affected by that. What was that moment like? What has caused you to weep? Maybe a second question. What offends you? These may feel like simple things. I don't, I don't just mean like big, hefty burdens, but just pause and consider what are three or four things that in life offend you when you see them go on? And see if you can start to tie a bond, a, a, if there's a tie that binds those things together. What offends you? List out three or four of them and see if you can see a connection there. Three, taking it from a different angle. This is another way to think about is we're trying to identify personal calling. Where are three or four moments in the last few years where you had a, a tremendous sense of accomplishment and satisfaction? Like where you were standing in a moment and all of a sudden you go, wow, I got to be a part of that. I did that. We accomplished that thing. Where was that moment where you're like, that was a sense of real accomplishment for me. What was going on in that situation? What, a fourth one potentially to, to engage is something that uh, in the book, Unique, they call a passion funnel. I brought mine because I've been working on this, and I'll just, I'll I'll share with you. It's thinking of four different categories and slowly drawing further down in. The first is thinking about your interests. What are you interested by? List five things that you're interested by. So for instance, me, that's reading, some good books, running, good food. I'm interested in real estate. I'm interested in college football. Those are just interests for me you know, I'd like to talk about it. If it comes up in conversation, I want to chat about it. If I have an opportunity to think about it, I'd love that. But not just interest. Now, drop down to what are you really excited by? And list only four things. Four things that you're excited by. For me, that's preaching, continued education, travel, family adventures. If there's an article about that, I'm going I'm, I'm to read it. I, I, I'm always finding myself, if I'm just kind of Looking on the internet, I'm usually looking at something that connects to one of those things. It's an interest. It's not just—I mean, pardon me. It's something I'm excited by. It's not just an interest. But then, if you drop down further, what are you driven by? What do you wake up thinking about and drives your activity during the day? For me, this is reaching the lost, reaching people that have never heard about the grace and the love of Jesus. It's a unified and a loving family. I'm driven by it. I wake up thinking about it, and it's growing as a leader. Those are things that I'm that I am driven by. But then lastly, and this is what we're driving towards. So work your passion funnel. Five things that you're interested in, four things you're excited by, three things you're driven by, but then down underneath, what are two things that you're burdened for? That like, it actually inf- influences all of those others, but there's something down deep. For me, as I wrestle with this, I realize way down at the bottom, I am burdened for disconnected neighbors disconnected from, the, from God and themselves and from their families and for developing leaders. And I want to give my life to raising those sorts of f- folks up that could experience connection and development. I want to give my life to that. What's your burden? What's down at the bottom? Work your passion for Those are four different ways to start answering the question, what is your burden? It might be that racial injustice is a burden for you. That in recent months, you have wept over it and that you've found your heart running back to it and you're reading about it and considering it. If you are, I want you to lean in with us this fall and allow your personal calling to influence our community by letting that influence the way that we lean in and try to be a part of God's solution to something that is near and dear to his heart and is deeply moving yours. It might be that you're you're burdened by Children that are born into single family homes or that don't have a mom or a dad that are invested and involved in them. It might be addiction recovery or refugee care or some area that Seven Mile Road, right now, as a body, is not currently invested in, but we want to know your calling and be wind in your sails. If we're going to be a people that rebuilds and brings God's renewal to an area, we all have to be in tune with what is my calling, not just my vocation, but my calling. What is my burden? Down under the surface. You see, this is the first part, but this isn't all. It may be that we identify a burden, but we still don't understand how divine calling works. Nehemiah presses forward, and I want to hear, I want you to hear the second reality that takes shape. The second component to this kind of equation for a calling from God is this disciplined prayer. Disciplined prayer. Look at it with me. In verse 4b, it says. Even after he was done mourning. So he mourned for days. But then it says, and I continued fasting and praying. So after the tears were done and the initial emotion passed, it says, I continued fasting and praying. He wept for days. By the start of chapter two, what we learned is that he fasted and prayed for four months. Disciplined prayer. And then we get the prayer. He says, I was praying before the God of heaven. I said, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive. You see, Nehemiah is situating himself before the God of heaven, great and awesome. He's reminding himself of who God is, saying, you're powerful. You're not undone. You're not wringing your hands or worried about the current state of affairs. So the fact that people have anxiety and fear and confusion, that's not coming from knowing you and trusting your character because you're the God of heaven. You hold everything. He's reminding himself of who God is. And then when he says, let your ear be attentive, he's reminding himself of history. That's a very specific word that he would know. It's only used two other times outside, or pardon me, three other times outside of his usage of that word. And the first two are when Solomon was dedicating the temple saying, God, will you always be attentive to the prayers of your people? Pay attention. He he leverages that word. He says, God, you told us in the moments when, when your sanctuary was being committed, we prayed and asked that you'd be attentive. Now I'm recalling that moment. Be attentive. Hear us, God. He reminds himself of history. situates himself in history as he reminds himself of Moses in the following verses and of the commandments that were given, the promises that were given. He also repents. He situates himself in the sin. He says in verse 6, he says, uh, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I in my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly. He is broken and confessing sin. And then he's recalling mercy, saying, God, we know that you'll move. You've done in the past. You promised even if your people are scattered to the uttermost parts of heaven, you will draw them back. You see, he's engaging in disciplined prayer, praying and fasting for four months in preparation for this. You see, if we have a divine burden, if your definition of calling is burden plus action, it is an incomplete equation. And sadly, I think a lot of people are operating that way today. They have a burden, something that caused tears, and so they're going to go do something about it. We have to do something. And they start speaking about it, speaking about it out of angst and passion, but not out of disciplined, slow, meditative prayer. A divine calling has has burden that is matched by disciplined prayer. One of the things that we learn about Nehemiah in the course of the rest of the book is that he is a man of action. Some of you feel like, well, gosh, I don't know about like disciplined prayer for months on end, day and night. Uh, It feels like, well, that's something a mystic would do. A mystic would go sit up on the mountain and seek God and pray day and night like a monk. Nehemiah is no monk and he is no monastic. The reason I say disciplined prayer is because what we learn in this book is that he is very much a man of action a man who has climbed the ladder, who has high political status, who works hard and gets things done. But what he realizes is that if his actions are going to be effective, he better engage in disciplined prayer. This, this doesn't come naturally to Nehemiah. It's born out of discipline, knowing he needs the presence and the power of God to ignite this burden that he's wrestling with. Your burden needs to bake in the oven of prayer. It needs to like heat up all the way down to the bottom in God's presence. We need to be a people of disciplined prayer who rehearse God's grandeur and remind ourselves of history and repent of our sin and recall his mercy. We need to pray in these ways. And so, 7 Mile Road, would you consider your calling and then would you lean in with us in a season of prayer? We've done this annually, but if ever we needed it, we need it now. We're calling ourselves to a season of 40 days of prayer and fasting that will start on August 11th and lead up to our fourth birthday together as a body. Would you lean in with us? This Wednesday, we will have our prayer gathering. And then August 11th, we will kick off 40 days of prayer where you will get a daily devotional from the book of Nehemiah. And we're asking people to sign up for different days to fast and to pray. I'd encourage you, if you've done it in the past, stretch a little further. Fast, fast maybe a few more days during those 40 with us. Lean in with us. And what I'm asking everyone to do every day is this. Pray for Houston every day, everyone. And by Houston, specifically what I mean is we've created an acronym for you that we're gonna send out in an email, we're gonna remind you of, we're gonna ask you to pray every day, but we want you to pray, H-O-U-S-T-O-N, H, hot hearts. God, give us passion for you, that you would be loved by the men and women of Seven Mile Road in a way that you've never been loved before. Oh. We wanna pray for our leaders. Would you pray for your pastors, your staff, your house church shepherds? Would you pray for me? Pray that we would be encouraged and empowered, that we leave with courage and compassion and wisdom. Pray for our leaders. You, pray for unity. Now is a time where the enemy is dividing everyone, including churches and Christians. You're not wearing a mask. You are wearing a mask. You're going out to that place. You're not going out to that place. Uh, you feel this way about the the situation with racial injustice, you feel this way, you listen to this person, you listen to that person, and all of a sudden, across the board, there's division. We wanna pray for unity, that by the Spirit of God, we would be a deeply unified and different sort of space together. S, would you pray for spirit-empowered revival? That's the central prayer that we're praying every day for a month. God, pour out revival, let us take ground, let us not just bide time. T, would you pray for top five? Pray for the five people that God has placed in your life that are far from God. Oh, pray for our partners. We want to pray for other churches and ministries in the city. When you drive across town, we want every church you pass to say, Holy Spirit, pour yourself out in power on that community. And in, we want to pray for new birth. That in the next three years, more people would be baptized in the city than the last 30. Like, Let's pray that we, we're living in historic times. Do you realize history books are going to talk about this time? <laughs> They're going to be telling this story. I'm longing that when the history is told, what it says is there is some surprising movement of God. For such a time as this. Can we have the power of the Holy Spirit placed right in a moment where hearts are exposed and the walls are down? Would we pray and weep and fast and say, God, for such a moment as this, would you raise us up and help us to rebuild? You see, calling takes shape as we have divine burden, disciplined prayer, and one one final thing that shows up in verse 11. Look back with me. Verse 11 says this. O Lord, let your ear be attentive, that same word again, attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The biggest twist. The biggest twist at the end of the chapter is this. Nehemiah works every day in the presence of of arguably the most powerful man on the planet and the one who has influence over what happens in Jerusalem. He is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the one known as King of Kings, King of Persia, King of Babylon, the one with the authority. And he's his cupbearer, which means he tastes the wine to make sure it's not poison. He's setting the table for Artaxerxes every day. This is actually an exalted position because he is one of the most trusted advisors that is actually protecting the life of Artaxerxes. He's trusted with Artaxerxes' life day in and day out. You see, the third component to vine calling is this. It's not just burden and it's not just prayer. It's your position. Where have you been specifically positioned? For Nehemiah, he had to steward the reality that he is daily before the man who has authority over these issues. The question for you is, what has God entrusted to you? it's part of your calling. Which relationships, what network of relationships do you have to steward? What's your job title and who works with you? How much money do you have in your savings account or your 401k? What relationships and and what uh, address are you in? What block are you on? Like, here's all of this to be stewarded with open hands and we're going, okay, you're praying you're praying about this burden. And it's almost as if Nehemiah, four months into praying and fasting with humility and courage and clear eyes is able to see the world differently. He's been praying night and day about this. And all of a sudden what he goes is, and by the way, I've got access to the man that can do something about it. That is my calling. When you begin to pray for revival and pray about your burden, God will begin to show you I've already put in your hands what is needed to address it. Now will you do something about it. You have unearthed calling when you can answer those three questions when you can lean in in those three ways. Well, I have one final question for you, and it's this, and it's an honest question. if we're just honest the the real response is, what about the days where I'm just selfish because I'd like to just admit there's a lot of days like that for me. I'm not burdened and I don't weep because I'm mostly just concerned about me. What about those days? What about the days where I'm not disciplined in prayer? I'm slovenly in prayer. Can we just be honest, seven mile road? We have not arrived and we are not the most disciplined, prayerful people that if someone could roll the tape on your life over the last month or five, they might say, I don't know that this person is operating out of divine calling. In fact, I think they're pretty slovenly in the way that they're seeking for God. There's certainly been days where that would be true of my story. And if we're not stewarding our specific positioning at all, we just try to leverage it for ourselves. When that is true, the question is, how do we re-engage the desire for divine calling? How do, we desi- how do we have the desire to have the desire? How do we get to the point of being broken? And listen, if you don't hear anything, hear this. Set your eyes on the greater Nehemiah. Look to him. Look to the one who is at the right hand of the king at great distance from a people that were suffering. His name is Jesus Christ, and he was not just in Persia looking at Jerusalem. He was in heaven looking at earth, and he saw his bride riddled with sin, selfish, lacking compassion, prayerless, folded in on themselves, and he said, oh God, would you send me at great cost to myself to rebuild the walls, to rescue my bride, and to bring her home? When we begin to realize that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah, the truly spirit-empowered leader who came a great distance to set his people free and to rescue them, to pay the price for our sin, for our selfishness and our slovenliness, he's rescued us. The good news that melts our soul and sets us on the path to discover our calling is what Jesus has accomplished. Would you meditate on it? Remember it? Know that we are not a people that act first. We act second. We act in response. We act as we go. I'm so loved. How can I continue to be about me? He came for me. And so now prayerfully, joyfully, I say, send me, God. Send me in the image of your son by his grace. And so brothers and sisters, Would you lean into your divine calling as we go on this journey of being the sort of people that rebuild the walls? Would you consider where is your burden? Would you pray with discipline in the coming days with us, stewarding your very position so that we can be the sort of people that say, here am I, God, let us rebuild. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, would you please... um, Would you forgive me? I and my family, my father's family, we have sinned. We've acted very corruptly. We live life like it's about us, don't we? God, forgive me. I don't want to live life like it's about me. I pray that we right now as a body that are tempted to just circle the wagons and to white knuckle this and to to just wait it out and have hope for, for some phantom day in the future. God, would you forgive us and draw us into this place where in your presence we say, we are yours. For the good of this city and the glory of your name, would you reveal to us our calling and equip us to rebuild for your glory? God, these are historic times. Raise up your people to make history for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.